ಓಂ ನಮೋ ಭಗವತೈ ಶ್ರೀ ಅರುಣಾಚಲ ರಮಣಾಯ ನಮಸ್ಕಾರ ಟುಡೇ ಐ ಗನ್ ಟು ಸ್ಟಾಪ್ ಬೈ ಆನ್ಸರಿಂಗ್ ಯೋರ್ ಕ್ವೆಶನ್ ಬಟ್ ಐ ವಾಸ್ ಆಸ್ಟ್ ಸಮನ್ ಸೆಂಟ್ ಅನ್ ಇಮೇಲ್ ಲಾಸ್ಟ್ ಮಂತ್ ಬಟ್ ಇಟ್ ವಾಸ್ ಆ್ಯಕ್ಚುಲಿ ಟೂ ಲೈಟ್ ಫಾರ್ ಮೀಟಿಂಗ್ ಐ ಕಾಂಟ್ ರಿಮೆಂಬರ್ ಸಮ್ ಬಿಕಾಸ್ ಅನ್ನಬರ್ ಕ್ವೆಶನ್ ಫಾರ್ ದ ಲಾಸ್ಟ್ ಮೀಟಿಂಗ್ ಐ ಕೆಟ್ ದಟ್ ದಿಸ್ ಕ್ವೆಶನ್ ಫಾರ್ ದಿಸ್ ಮೀಟಿಂಗ್ ದಟ್ ಈಸ್ ದ ಕ್ವೆಶನ್ ವಾಸ್ referring to uh, the video of the meeting we all had on the uh, 24th of uh, June. Um, I can't remember exactly what was said in that uh, video, but anyway, what, the, what this friend wrote is, I have a doubt. If only pure awareness can know pure awareness, why do you say in the video that you will use the ego to investigate our real nature? Isn't this what Ramana Maharshi said about turning the thief into a policeman? He will go with you, pretend to catch the thief that is himself, but nothing will be gained. You say the ego grasps awareness from pure awareness. You call it a phantom without form. But then you say we should use this non-existent ego to investigate itself. Isn't this a contradiction? Um... <laughs> that that's question so but the, the answer is ego as ego is wholly non-existent ego doesn't actually exist however ego seems to be exist it seems to exist that is so long as we are aware of anything other than ourselves we who are aware of other things are ego that is the nature of ego it rises stands and flourishes by grasping the form of a body as itself and then constantly grasping other forms so um that which is aware of itself as i am this body and that is consequently aware of anything other than itself is ego so though this ego isn't real it doesn't actually exist it seems to exist and though as ego it is wholly non-existent wholly unreal it does contain an element of reality in it that is it is like the um the, uh, the rope and the snake the snake is in, is non-existent there's no actual snake there so the, the the snake is a mere appearance it doesn't actually exist but it seems to exist but what but though the snake as a snake is wholly non-existent there is something there that is appearing as a snake that something is a rope so the, the snake is real as a rope it is unreal as a snake likewise ego is unreal as ego but it is real as pure awareness that is pure awareness is the reality underlying ego so pure awareness is what always shines as i am ego is that same i am but mixed and conflated with adjuncts pure awareness is never mixed and conflated with adjuncts but in the view of our self as ego the awareness i am seems to be mixed and conflated with adjuncts so we are not aware of our self as just i am we are aware of our self as i am this per- i am this body i am this person i am michael i am whoever so though though ego is unreal as ego there is an element of reality in it 
Uh, and that element of reality, well, that element of reality is the only thing that actually exists. And that is what we are investigating when we turn our attention within. So ego, it, it is ego that is to investigate, who am I? Because all problems are only for ego. It's only when we rise as ego and consequently take ourselves to be a body, but we seem to be confronted with so many problems and so much dissatisfaction and so on and so forth. When we don't rise as ego, as in sleep, we're perfectly contented. There's no, in sleep, that sleep means dreamless sleep, of course. In sleep, we have, there's no problem at all because we haven't risen as ego. In waking and dream, we rise as ego, take a body to be ourself, see a world, and therefore face so many problems. So all problems are only for ego. So it is ego that needs to find a solution to its problems. According to Bhagavan, the root of all problems is our rising as ego, because it's only when we rise as ego that other problems seem to exist. So if we get rid of ego, we get rid of all problems. So how to get rid of ego? Ego is a false awareness of ourself. That is, the true awareness of ourself is just I am. But as ego, we, though we are always aware I am, we're not aware of ourselves as just I am. We're aware of ourselves as I am this body, I am this person, I am so-and-so. Um, so the problems of the ego, and so it's ego that must find the solution. The solution is for ego to know its real nature. If ego knows its real nature, what it, the real nature of ego is pure awareness. If ego knows itself as pure awareness, it thereby ceases to be ego because ego is the, is, the, is the adjunct mixed awareness, the adjunct conflated awareness, I am this body. When we know ourselves as just I am, then this false, this, this, um, this delusion that we are this body will be removed. And what will then remain is pure awareness. So what knows pure awareness is only pure awareness. That is, we as ego can never know pure awareness. But though we can never know pure awareness, we need to try to know pure awareness. Because as soon as we know pure awareness, we will thereby cease to be ego and remain as pure awareness. That is why Bhagavan says, for example, in verse 26 of, um, of Upadesha India, he says, Tanai iritale tanai aridalam. That means uh, being oneself alone is knowing oneself. Oneself here means what we actually are, in other words, pure awareness. We can know pure awareness only by being pure awareness. So long as we rise as ego, we don't know pure awareness. Well, we always know pure awareness, but we don't know it in its purity because we know it mixed and conflated with adjuncts. So the, the problems of the ego and it, the, the invest, so it is ego that needs to investigate itself to find out what it actually is. When it finds out what it actually is, namely pure awareness, it ceases to be ego and remains as pure awareness. That is why it's not just me who says this, this is what Bhagavan said, only pure awareness can know pure awareness. For example, Bhagavan often used to say, when people talk about jnanis, Bhagavan used to say, jnana me jnani. In this context, jnana means pure awareness. Jnani means what knows pure awareness. Jnana me jnani means jnana alone is the jnani. 
That is, pure awareness is alone what knows pure awareness. So, Banyani, though in our view, Banyani seems to be a person. For example, Bhagavan seems to us to be a person like us. He seems to have a body, a mind, and to, uh, to, to uh, talk like us, see like us, and so on and so forth. That is, Bhagavan said, the body of Banyani appears only in the view of Agnani. Because we mistake ourselves to be a body, we mistake Banyani to be a body. But what Banyani actually is, is not the, the form, the, the, the body that it seems to be, it is just pure awareness. So Bhagavan is nothing but pure awareness. He is that pure awareness that is always shining in our, shining in our heart as I am. And pure awareness, of course, is just pure being. Sat and chit are one and the same. Sat is pure being, chit is pure awareness. That is what we actually are, sat chit, um, which are one and the same thing. They're not two things. So coming now, th this is um, laying the groundwork for the answer to the question. So that is why I, say, I said in that um, previous vid video if, that it is only pure awareness can know pure awareness. But the question I'm now asked is, if only pure awareness can know pure awareness, why do you say that uh, you will use the ego to investigate our real nature? That is, we're not exactly using ego. Ego is not an, a tool or an implement we are using. We have risen as ego. We seem to be ego. So it is as ego that we need to investigate ourselves. That is, pure awareness cannot and need not investigate itself because it always knows itself as it is. So there's no need for any investigation and no mind there to investigate. So it's only ego that is to, to investigate its real nature. Um, but then the questioner goes on to ask, isn't this what Ramana Maharshi said about the turning the thief into policeman? He will go with you, pretend to catch the thief that is himself, but nothing will be gained. That is, this is an analogy Bhagavan often used. But we, we, this is a, I, I'm asked, this question I'm asked here, the reason, main reason I took up this is because of this question about referring to this analogy because many people seem to many people don't seem to pay close enough attention to what bhagavan actually says bhagavan isn't say he's not using this analogy to say that self-investigation is useless he's using this analogy to explain why self-investigation self-inquiry atmavichara is the only means by which we can eradicate ego this is something, as far as I, I'm aware, Bhagavan hasn't written this analogy anywhere, but it occurs in most of the books. For example, um, because it's an analogy Bhagavan often used while talking, because it's, a, it's a, such an important analogy. For example, in Maharshi's Gospel, in the first chapter of the second book, that's the second part, second half of uh, Maharshi's gospel. That's the chapter called Self-Inquiry. One of the questions Bhagavan was asked is, why should self-inquiry alone be considered the direct means to jnana? And Bhagavan's answer is, because every kind of sadhana, except atmavichara, presupposes the retention of the mind as the instrument for carrying on the sadhana. And without the mind, it cannot be practiced. 
the ego may take uh, different and subtler forms at different stages of one's practice, but is it, but is itself never destroyed. When Janaka exclaimed, now I've discovered the thief who has been ruining me all along, he shall be dealt with summarily, uh, the king was really referring to the ego or the mind. And then the devotee uh, says, but the thief may well be apprehended by other sadhanas as well. And Bhagavan replies, the attempt to destroy the ego or mind through sadhanas other than Atmavichara it's just like the thief assuming the guise of a policeman to catch the thief that is himself. Atmavichara alone can reveal the truth, but neither the ego nor the mind really exists and enables one to realize the pure, undifferentiated being of the self or the absolute. So what Bhagavan is saying here, and what he says in all places where he uses this analogy, this is not, he's not talking here about Atma Vichara, he's talking about all sadhanas other than Atma Vichara. He says it very clearly, the attempt to destroy the ego or mind through sadhanas other than Atma Vichara is just like the thief assuming the guise of a policeman to catch the thief that is himself. So, what, why did Bhagavan use this analogy? We need to consider this carefully. That is, firstly, to give a little bit of context to this analogy, it actually refers to an incident that happened in Bhagavan's childhood. He mentions this in section 615 of, um, of uh, talks. Um, that It's a short section. Someone asks... Uh, asked Bhagavan, how is the ego to be destroyed? Bhagavan says, hold the ego first and then ask how it is to be destroyed. Who asked this question? It is the ego. Can the ego ever agree to kill itself? It, this is not very clear, actually, this part of this, but anyway, I'll come to the main point. This question is a sure way to cherish the ego and not to kill it. If you seek the ego, you will find it does not exist. That is the way to destroy it. That is what, it's not very clearly recorded here. What Bhagavan is saying here, if you try to kill the mind by any other means, if you set about with name, I'm going to kill the mind, I'm going to kill the ego, it's not going to work. Only if, but if you investigate ego, if you, as he says, if you seek the ego, you will find it does not exist. That is the way to destroy it. And then he gives the context in which he gave this analogy on other occasions. He says, in this connection, I'm reminded of a funny incident which took place when I was living in the West Chitre Street in Madurai. A neighbor in an adjoining house anticipated the visit of a thief to his house. He took precautions to catch him. He posted policemen in mufti, mufti means plain clothes, he pasted policemen in mufti to guard the two ends of the lane and the, the entrance and the back door to his own house. The thief came as, as expected and the men rushed to catch him. He took in the situation at a glance and shouted, hold him, hold him, there he runs, there, there. Uh, saying so, he made good his escape. So it is with ego. Look for it and it will not be find, found. That is the way to get rid of it. So what Bhagavad, that is, this, this story was the, was the 
the basis of this analogy, that is what that thief did, there were policemen posted there, several policemen, or maybe whether they were actual policemen or whether they were just pri privately hired guards, but anyway, whoever it was, uh, in effect, they were policemen. They were posted at each end of the lane, at the front door and at the back door of the house. Their aim is to catch the thief. So when the thief sees that he's about to be caught, he pretends to be one of them. And he says, look, there, there, hold, hold him, he's gone there. What did the thief do by that? He distracted the attention of the, of the real policeman away from himself. So they started looking elsewhere. They, they didn't suspect him because he seemed to be one of them. So this analogy, the purpose of why reason why Bhagavan used this analogy is that the thief is, is pretending to be a policeman, posing as a policeman in order to distract the attention of others away from himself towards, as if the thief has run away. So he thereby avoids scrutiny. Exactly the same in all sadhanas, abhavanatmavachara. In all sadhanas, abhavanatmavachara, we are attending to something other than ourselves. We who are attending are ego. So we are we are diverting our attention away from ourselves towards other things, towards the name of form of God or whatever it may be, or to our breathing or I mean there are so many different types of practices people do. But in every practice other than Atmavichara, the attention is directed towards something other than oneself. That is why Bhagavan used this analogy. That is the by doing anything other than Atmavichara, we are diverting our attention away from ourselves towards some other thing. And thereby we are escaping um, we escaping capture, just like the thief pretended to be a policeman in order to divert the attention away from himself. There are a number of places where Bhagavan um where where Bhagavan uses this analogy. Another place where he uses it is in um in day by day um uh that is um, in the entry on uh eight eleven forty five that's the eighth of um uh, november nineteen forty five morning and what Devaraja Mudli has recorded is when on two eleven forty five mr Roy asked Bhagavan the best way of killing ego Bhagavan said Ask the mind to kill the mind is making the thief the policeman. He will go with you and pretend to catch the thief, but nothing will be gained. So you must turn inwards and see where the mind rises from, and then it will cease to exist. In reference to this answer, Mr. Tambi Dore of Jaffna, who have been visiting, who have been living in Palakotu for over a year, asked me whether the mind turning inwards to seek its source is not also employing the mind. So I put this doubt before Bhagavan, and Bhagavan said, Of course we're employing the mind. It is well known and admitted, but only with the help of the mind, the mind has to be killed. But instead of seeking, instead of setting about saying there is a mind and I want to kill it, you begin to seek the source of the mind, um, and you find that the mind does not exist at all. 
And then Bhagavan says something very, very important here. Um, the mind turned outwards results in thoughts and objects. Turned inwards, it, it, it becomes the self itself. It becomes itself the self. In other words, the outward term mind is what we call mind or ego. The same mind, when turned inwards, it becomes what we actually are. It, it subsides and merges back into the pure awareness that we actually are. That's why he said, turned inwards, it becomes itself the self. Such a mind is sometimes called a rupa manas or suddha manas. A rupa manas means formless mind or suddha manas being pure mind. But obviously the mind cannot stand without grasping a form. So if it's without form, if it's a rupa, it's no mind at all. If it's pure, it's also no mind at all because the very nature of the mind is, the, is impurity. Bhagavan says a very similar thing elsewhere in uh, Day by Day. Um, that is uh, that what he says here. Wait, I'll see if I can find it. Um, uh, where he's uh, that is this portion, the mind turned outwards results in thoughts and objects, turned inwards, it, it, it becomes itself the self. Um, Uh, I'll see if I can find that other place where Bhagavan says the same thing. Ah, yes, here, here. This is on, uh, this is another entry on um, the 11th of January, 1946 afternoon. Uh, towards the end of that entry, uh, a visit, another visitor asked Bhagavan, what is the difference between the mind and the self? Bhagavan, there is no difference. The mind turned inwards is the self. Turned outwards, it becomes the ego and all the world. So the, the, the mind here means the power of attention. If we turn our attention outwards, we who are facing outwards are mind or ego. But if we turn the same attention back within to face ourselves, Ego, that is ego, which is the root of the mind. So when Bhagavan talks about mind, he, when he talks about the mind turned outwards or the mind turned inwards, he's meaning the ego. But when, when we turn within, ego subsides and the pure awareness that we actually are is what alone remains. So though the mind is being used both in Atmavichara and in other sadhanas, the way in which the mind is being used is quite different. In other sadhanas, we are facing our attention outwards and thereby uh, nourishing and sustaining the delusion that we are this body, I am this body, which is that, that delusion is what is called ego. In self-investigation, we're not turning our attention outwards, we're turning it inwards. In other words, we're turning it back towards ourselves. So it, we, we are ego so long as we look outside. When we look inside, we as ego subside, and what we actually are, the pure awareness that we actually are, alone remains. Um, he also uses this, he also, another place where he uses this, um, this analogy of uh, uh, the thief is in section 43 of talks. Um, uh, someone asked Bhagavan, uh, Mr. Ramamurti asked Bhagavan, how to know the real eye as distinct from the false eye? Um, and Bhagavan answers, is there anyone who is not aware of himself? 
each one knows, but yet does not know the self, a strange paradox. The master later added, if the inquiry is made whether the mind exists, it will be mind it will be found that the mind does not exist. This is control of mind. Otherwise, if the mind is taken to exist and one seeks to control it, it amounts to mind controlling the mind, just like a thief turning out to be a policeman to catch the thief himself. Mind persists in that way, but deludes itself. So but, but that is what Bhagavan is saying here, trying to destroy the mind by any means other than turning our attention inwards is like the thief turned becoming a policeman to catch the thief. But by he, the thief doesn't actually become a policeman, he poses as a policeman. By posing as a policeman, he diverts the attention away from himself towards some mythical person who has run away. There he goes, run, run, catch him. As he, as he put it graphically when he was telling that story of uh, what happened when he was in Madurai. So the all other sadhanas are a means to divert attention away from ourselves. So they are like the thief turning, uh, posing as a policeman in order to evade capture. Whereas self-investigation, the attention is being, that, that his ego is turning its attention back on itself. In other words, the, the thief is attracting attention to himself, so he's going to be caught. So this is why Atma-vichara is fundamentally unlike all other sadhanas. All other sadhanas, we are attending to something other than ourselves. Only in Atma-vichara, we are attending to ourselves to see what we actually are. Now we seem to be ego so long as we're looking outwards. If we look within, there's no such thing as ego to be found. As Bhagavan says in verse 25 of Uludunapadu, there he describes ego as a formless phantom or demon. And he says, grasping form, it comes into existence. Grasping form, it stands. Grasping and feeding on form, it flourishes abundantly. Leaving form, it grasps form. What he means by saying that is the very nature of ego is to always grasp form. In other words, always grasp something other than itself, because it is formless. So whatever it, whatever form it grasps is something other than itself. So as soon as we rise as ego, that is simultaneously with our rising as ego, we project and grasp the form of a body as ourself. That's what he means by uh, grasping form, it comes into existence. Grasping form, it stands. That is, the ego cannot stand for a moment without constantly grasping the form of a body as itself. And then he goes on to say, uh, uh, grasping and feeding on forms, it flourishes abundantly. That is, having once grasped the form of this body as I, we become aware of so many other forms. So our attention is flowing away from ourselves towards all these other things. That is how we we nourish and uh, fatten this ego. Um, but then he goes on, and then he says, leaving form, it grasps form. That is, the, the a ego cannot remain for a moment without grasping form. So if it leaves one form, it grasps another form. So the, the nature of ego is to always grasp things other than itself. In, all, in other words, it's always to pay attention to things other than itself. But then he goes on to say the most important sentence, the crucial sentence in this verse 25 of Uludnaptu, Tedinal Otum Pidicum. 
Tedina literally means if seeking. There's neither an explicit subject nor an explicit object there. But the implication is if ego seeks itself, or, or to put it even more precisely, if ego seeks its own reality, if ego seeks who am I, what actually am I? Uh, in other words, if, uh, so if ego seeking itself or seeking its own reality means ego turning its attention back on itself. If it turns its attention back on itself, autumpidicum. Autumpidicum literally means it will take to running or it will take to flight. Just like in English, we say if someone, if, um, if uh, you know, in the battlefield, you're faced with a, a much stronger enemy and you can't resist them, then you flee. The idiomatic way of saying that in English is you take flight. In Tamil, there's exactly the same idiom is there. Tedinal, uh, sorry, autumn pidicum. Autumn means running. Pidicum means grasping. So you're grasping running. In other words, you resort to running away. So if so long as we are attending to anything other than ourselves, to any form or name or anything other than ourselves, we are thereby sustaining and nourishing ego because the Bhagavan says grasping and feeding on form it flourishes abundantly so by attending to anything other than ourselves we are nourishing and sustaining this delusion called ego this false awareness i am this body but if we turn our attention back within to see who am i if we we seek to know what we actually are this ego will run away. That means it will subside and dissolve back into its source. Because we seem to be ego only when we're looking outwards. If we look within, there's no such thing as ego to be found. So this is the significance of this. Why Bhagavan says all other sadhanas are like a thief posing as a policeman to catch uh, the thief. He, the thief doesn't really want to catch the thief. He poses as a policeman to divert attention away from himself in order to avoid capture. But in self-investigation, we don't allow the thief to divert attention away from himself. But this thief will always be trying to divert the attention away. But we have to hold on firmly to self-attentiveness. We shouldn't allow our attention to be diverted away from ourselves. Thereby, we prevent the thief from escaping. Since there's no other way to escape, this thief has to subside back into its source and where it will dissolve. And since we ourselves are this ego, when we turn our attention within, we will subside back into the pure being, the pure awareness that we actually are, and remain as that. So we turn our attention back towards Satchit and thereby subside in Satchit as Satchit. Um, so they, what, what, when I said that we need to, ego needs to investigate its real nature, it's not just me who's saying that, I'm just explaining what Bhagavan is saying. That is not what Bhagavan meant by the thief turning uh, into a, um, in the thief posing as a policeman. He meant exactly the opposite. All other sadhanas are the thief turning into a policeman. The sadhana of turning our attention within is not the thief turning into a policeman. It's the thief. Um, standing up and saying, I'm the thief, in effect. I mean, he's turning the attention towards himself rather than towards anything else. So he, the, 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 the destruction of ego is possible only by this Atma Vichara, not by any other means. Because all other means 
divert our attention away from ourselves. Atmavichara, we direct our attention back towards ourselves to see who am I. We seem to be ego before we turn within, but when we look within, there's no such thing as ego to be found. Tedinal otum piticum, we sort it takes flight. And then the, this, the question goes on. You say that ego grasps awareness from pure awareness. You call it a phantom without form, but you say we should use this non-existent ego to investigate itself. It's not quite correct to say ego grasps awareness from pure awareness. That is what Bhagavan says, it, ego grasps the form. What ego is nothing but pure awareness. It seems to be something other than pure awareness because it has grasped the form as I am this form, I am this body, I am Michael. So, it, it, so long as I'm aware of myself as I am Michael, I'm not aware of myself as I actually am, which is pure awareness. So what we are, what ego is grasping is the forms, not the awareness. The awareness is the underlying basis. That ego couldn't rise. Ego rises from and is sustained by the pure awareness that we actually are. That is, the pure awareness is what shines as I am. Without I am, there could be no ego. But ego is the adjunct conflated awareness, I am this body. Um, and then he said, but then you say we should use this non-existent ego to investigate itself. As I said earlier, we are not using ego. We who are trying to investigate ourselves, so long as we're trying to investigate ourselves, we who are trying our ego. But if we turn our attention back towards ourselves keenly enough to see what we actually are, then we will see, oh, we are not, it is not, e what, what seemed to be ego is actually just pure awareness. It's just like, why does a, why does a rope look like a snake? Because we haven't looked at it carefully enough. If we look at it carefully enough, what will we see? Or it's not a snake, it's just a harmless rope. But we, in order to see that it's a harmless rope, we need to look at it very carefully. And likewise, in order to see that there's no such thing as ego, we need to look at ourselves very carefully. It's no use looking outside and saying, oh, there's no such thing as ego, because the one who is looking outside, the one who is experiencing anything other than itself is ego. So though ego is non-existent, it seems to exist so long as we don't look at it carefully enough. If we look at it carefully enough, we will see it is not ego, it is just pure awareness. Just as if we look at the snake carefully enough, we'll see that it is not a snake, but just a rope. Um, so the question, final question is, isn't this a contradiction? No, it is not a contradiction, as I hope I have uh, explained adequately. In I mean, this is why Bhagavan used this analogy of the, of the policeman uh, posing as a policeman, and why he insisted that only by turning our attention within, in other words, only by turning our attention back to face ourselves alone, can we destroy this ego. Because so long as we're looking out, we seem to be ego. Only when we look within, this ego will subside, and what we actually are alone will remain shining as it always is, as the pure awareness, pure being I am. So I hope that's an adequate answer to that question. Does anyone have any other um, 
any other questions they'd like to ask about this subject or any any other related topic there are a few questions michael yes uh, actually several about six of them right um so the first question is uh, the mind turned outwards is ego and the mind turned inwards is the self or ourself as we actually are it is also said that there is no mind. In other words, there is no mind as ego and no mind as thoughts. However, Bhagwan said sentences with I think. This all creates some confusion. Could you please clarify this? Okay. When we say Bhagavan said sentences like I think, we are seeing Bhagavan as a person like us. As a person, he seems to have a body and mind. But actually, Bhagavan is not a person. He has no body or mind. He is just the pure awareness, but, but just pure awareness. But he has appeared outwardly in human name and form in order to turn our attention within. Bhagavan explained about this. Guru is what is always shining in our heart as our fundamental awareness I am. That guru is what we actually are. It's always shining in our heart, always trying to pull our attention within. But because we are, our attention is always going outwards, it's necessary for guru to appear outwardly. Guru means it, he's our own real nature. What we actually are has appeared outwardly in the form of Bhagavan Ramana in order to tell us the term within. But as Bhagavan explained, the body and mind of Vijnani exists only in the view of the Agnani. Bhagavan isn't aware of any body or mind. It's only in our view that he seems to be the body and mind. And so long as he seems to be the body and mind, he seems to be seeing the world just as we are. He seems to be answering our questions. He seems to say, I think, and so on and so forth. But this is all only in our view. The only purpose for which Bhagavan appeared outwardly is in order to tell us to look within. So if we want to really understand Bhagavan, if we want to know what Bhagavan actually is, we need to know what we actually are, because he is what we actually are. He is our own real nature. So um, uh, the, the, the confusion arises only when we mistake Bhagavan to be the person that he seems to be. Of course, we have the highest, the greatest love and uh, and reverence for that name and form in which he appeared, because what was shining through that name and form is only Guru. That is our own God or Guru, whatever we call it. It's our own real nature shining through that form, telling us to turn back within. So we 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 have love for that form because of what it, it, it because it's through that form but but the guru who is always shining in our heart has appeared outwardly in that form and through that form he's given us these teachings telling us to turn back within i've answered a later part of the question i'm not sure whether i answered all the question shalini would you mind just repeating that question because sometimes i may miss some dance all the points yeah. The mind turned outwards is ego, and the mind turned inwards is the self or ourself as we actually are. It is also said that there is no mind. 
In other words, there is no mind as ego and no mind as thoughts. However, Bhagwan said sentences with I think. This all creates some confusion for me. Could you clarify this, okay. please? Right. I've answered the later portion. Regarding the fact that there's no mind, that is firstly about the two terms, mind and ego. Mind is a word but it has different meaning in different contexts. So as Bhagavan clarified in verse 18 of Rupadeshundia, he begins by saying, Enangale manam, that is thoughts alone are mind. Why does he say that? Because generally we use the term mind as a collective name for all thoughts. But he then goes on to say, of all, meaning of all thoughts, the thought called I alone is the root. What does he mean by that? That if we consider all the thoughts of the mind, there's one thought, I. That thought, I, is, is, is the subject. All other thoughts are objects known by that subject. The thought called I, as Bhagavan often clarified, is what he, is, what he means by the thought called I is ego. So ego is the subject, all other thoughts are objects. Since other thoughts are objects, they cannot exist without the subject because they seem to exist only in the view of a subject. So without ego, the first thought, there could not be any other thoughts. Therefore, what the mind essentially is, is just this first thought I. So we, when the word mind is used, we need to understand from the context the sense in which it is used. If, they, if we're talking about, when we, if we use the word mind to refer to other thoughts, there the mind is, it, the term mind is referring to the objects, uh, because all other thoughts are objects. But if we talk about the mind seeing something or knowing something or turning inwards or turning outwards, their mind means only ego, because its own ego is the only element of the mind but sees, knows, can turn inward, can turn outward. So when, he, when Bhagavan, Bhagavan often uses the term mind as a synonym for ego. So in this, these contexts, he's using the mind as a synonym for ego. We seem to be mind so long as we're looking outwards. If we look within, as Bhagavan said, the mind turned inwards is the self. What he means by the self is what we actually are. Actually, there's no such word in English, in Tamil, as the self. That's an, in English, that term is used. Bhagavan probably there would have used the term Swarupa or Atma Swarupa. Swarupa means uh, own form. In other words, it means ourself as we actually are. Or Atma Swarupa means um, the real nature of ourself, ourself as we actually are. So long as we're turning our attention outwards, we seem to be ego or mind. We seem to be the subject knowing all the objects. But when we turn that same attention back within, back towards ourself, that ego or mind will subside. And what remains is what we actually are, which is Swarupa, which is what is referred to in that uh, quotation. But Bhagavan obviously wasn't speaking in English. Bhagavan was speaking in Tamil. The recorder uses the term the self for Swarupa. So when the, when the same mind that is now turning outwards and uh, seeming to be ego, when that mind is turned within, when the attention is turned within, it becomes Swarupa. 
becomes what we actually are. Then it, when the mind becomes Swarupa, it's no longer mind. So mind doesn't actually exist. My, we seem to be the mind or ego so long as we're looking outwards. If we look within, there's no such thing as mind or ego to be found. This is why Bhagavan often used to say, when people said, why, all, why does ego come into existence? Why all these problems? Bhagavan says it's all caused only by avichara. Avichara is the opposite of vichara. Avichara means non-investigation. In other words, what Bhagavan means by non-investigation is what's otherwise called pramada. Not, that is negligent, self-negligent, not being vigilantly self-attentive. That is the whole problem. So the solution to all problems is to be self-attentive. Because by self-attentiveness, by, by being self-attentive means we're doing up, we're doing vichara. We are there by, by doing vichara, we're avoiding non-vichara. By, by being attentive, we're avoiding negligence. So we need to be self-attentive. That is, we need to tend not to anything other than ourselves. Because attending to anything other than ourselves, what attends to anything other than itself is only ego. But we who are now attending to other things need to turn our attention back to attend to ourselves. By attending to ourselves, we who started to turn our attention back to ourselves we as ego subside and what then remains is what we actually are so the truth is as bhagavan says in verse 17 of upadeshundi a previous verse um he says manatin uruve maravadu chava manamenamontri leyundi para magam nerakomidundi para that is if one investigates the form of the mind without negligence. What he means by the form of the mind here, in the previous verse, he had talked about manam tan oliuru, the mind knowing its own form of light. So what the mind essentially is, it's the mind's form, in other words, the mind's real nature. It doesn't mean that the mind is literally a form, but, but what the mind actually is, if we investigate what the mind actually is, in other words, if we investigate that fundamental awareness I am, the light of pure awareness, we will find that there's no such thing as mind at all. All that what seems now to be mind is only pure awareness. It seems to be mind because we're facing outwards. If we face back within to see who am I, mind merges back in pure awareness and pure awareness alone remains. Since the mind appears and disappears, it doesn't actually exist, even when it seems to exist. So, according to Bhagavan, there is no such thing as mind at all. But in order to see that there is no such thing as mind at all, we need to stop looking outwards, we need to turn our attention back within. Because there is no use in looking outwards and saying, oh, there is no mind, there is no ego. <laughs> that doesn't help us, because we as ego are suffering so long as we are looking outwards. If we want to be free of all troubles, we need to turn our attention back within. So I hope that adequately answers that question. Are there any more questions, Shalini? Sorry, it takes a minute to... Yeah. Yeah, there's several. This question is, is it pure awareness which is responsible for the notion of ego? 
Does pure awareness use ego as a medium to know or evolve itself? Is the the rope responsible for the appearance of the snake? No, the the rope is not doing anything. The rope is just as it is. In the onlooker's view, the rope seems to be a snake. The rope isn't doing anything. Likewise, pure awareness is pure being. It's not doing anything. It is just as it is. It is not evolving. It cannot evolve. It is immutable. It's eternal, infinite, and immutable. It is one without a second. So there's nothing for it to achieve, nothing for it to gain. So it is not doing anything. It is not trying to achieve anything. The whole problem is the ego. Somehow we seem to have risen as ego. We seem to be ego only when we're looking outside. If we look back within to see what we actually are, we will see that we have never ri- what we actually are is pure awareness. And pure awareness never rises as ego. So we, the, because pure awareness is immutable, it never undergoes any change whatsoever. So we seem to be ego only so long as we're looking outwards. If we look within, we will find there's no such thing as ego at all. But so long as we're looking outwards, uh, uh, there, there, nowadays there are, um, they, there's, it's a favorite line of, uh, of neo-Advaitins to say there's no mind, no ego, no problem or anything. But they are fooling themselves. So long as we're looking outwards, though ego doesn't actually exist, it seems to exist because the I who is aware of all these things is ego. It's only in the view of ego that all these things exist. In the view of pure awareness, there is only pure awareness. Because pure awareness is one without a second. So all the appearance of all other things, the appearance of mind, body, world, everything, is only in the view of ourself as ego. So, so long as we continue to rise as ego, we will continue to experience ourselves as a body and consequently to suffer in the world. If we turn our attention back within to see what we actually are, we will merge back into pure awareness. And once we see ourselves as pure awareness, we will see that we have never risen as ego. So there never was any ego, there never was any body, never was any mind, never was any body, never was any world. That is why the ultimate truth is ajata. But there's no use talking about ajata so long as we're looking outwards, because looking outwards is the very antithesis of ajata. We can we can see the truth of ajata only by looking in and seeing what we actually are. Ajata means uh, literally it means non-birth, not born. That means nothing has ever risen, nothing has ever appeared or disappeared. Because what is alone is as it always is. But in order for us to see that, because now we seem to be ego, we need to make the effort to look within to see what we actually are. Then only will we see that um, the truth of ajata. So Bhagavan clarified ajata is not a teaching, because in ajata there's, there's no one who in need of any teaching, and there's no separate person to teach anything. But ajata is the ultimate truth. But we will discover by investigating ourselves. 
The next question is, I have been reading that suffering is essential for salvation, yet Michael says that the aim of Advaita is the elimination of suffering. In talks with Sri Ramana Maharishi, Ramana is recorded as saying, suffering is the way for realization of God. Talk number 107. Could you please clarify this? Okay. That, that is different explanations are appropriate in different contexts. Yes. That is, our rising as ego is itself suffering. So if we are wise, we will learn. That is, it's our own experience every day. In sleep, we do not rise as ego. We are perfectly happy. We have no problem whatsoever in sleep. But in waking and dream, we've risen as ego and we're facing so many problems. So that itself should be a big lesson to us. But the, the, all problems arise only because we arise as ego. Therefore, we shouldn't rise. And therefore, we should try to put it. Sleep is very pleasant. But the problem with sleep, it's only a temporary dissolution of ego. We want, per, in other words, it's manolaya. We want permanent dissolution of ego. That's manonasa. So in order to annihilate, in order to um, to put an end to the rising of ego in such a way that it will never rise again, the only means is atma-vichara. So the, the suffering that we experience when we come outwards remind, should remind us to go within. According to Bhagavan, that when the, when the world appears, uh, the mind experiences suffering. When the world disappears, there's no suffering. What does he mean by that? The world appears only when we rise as ego. So but my implication is, that this, this is what he says towards the end of the 14th paragraph of Nana. So the implication is, our rising as ego is itself misery. If we want to put an end to all misery, we need to stop rising as ego. I'll just get that particular portion where Bhagavan says that. Um, towards the end of the 14th paragraph, he says, um, what is called the world is only thought. That is, uh, um, jag uh, jagam embadu nineve. What is called the world is only thought. Jagam marayam podu adavdu ninevatra podu manam anandate anubhavikindradu. That is, when the world disappears, that is, when there are no thoughts, the mind experiences happiness. Jagam tondram podu adu dukate anubhavikindradu. That is, when, when the world appears, it experiences misery. Well, um, though Bhagavan said the mind experiences happiness, that is just a way of saying it. Actually, when the world disappears, it, the world will disappear only when the mind disappears. So what experiences happiness in the absence of the world, metaphorically Bhagavan refers to it as mind. But what he means is we experience happiness when the world when the world disappears, when we're, when we when we're free of thoughts, as in sleep, we experience happiness. When we rise as ego in waking and dream, we the world appears and consequently we experience misery. So the whole problem is our rising as ego. Because it's only when we're right when we rise as ego that the world appears. 
If we don't rise ego, the world doesn't appear. So the very rising of ego is misery. As we can all see from our own, if we are, if we consider our experience carefully, throughout waking and dream, we are constantly uh, dissatisfied. We're constantly seeking something. That's why the mind is constantly active. It's constantly seeking something. It, it's never satisfied with what is present. Um, because the very nature of mind is dissatisfaction. That is, our real nature is infinite happiness. Infinite happiness means infinite satisfaction. So when we rise as ego, we are limiting ourselves to within the confines of this small body. So as this limited uh, uh, awareness, this body-limited awareness called ego, we can never experience infinite happiness. That is, in order to experience infinite happiness, we must be infinite. But so long as we rise as ego, we seem to be finite. So whenever we rise as ego, we experience dissatisfaction. The dissatisfaction is what is called dukkha, or it's also dukkha can also be translated as um, suffering, misery, or um, whatever. So uh, yes, the reason we are we, we we can say the reason we are given to suffer is to remind us to turn within. So if, if there was no suffering, who would want liberation? All we want is to be happy. We were, liberation means liberate freedom from unhappiness, freedom from suffering. So but without suffering, we wouldn't be seeking freedom from suffering. But if there was no suffering, we wouldn't be need, in need of seeking freedom from suffering. So um, it, it, it's a, from a, in a certain perspective, it is true to say, yes, suffering is the means to liberation, because suffering will remind you that rising as ego is bad news. <laughs> Whenever we rise as ego, we suffer in one way or another. So what is the solution to stop rising as ego? How to avoid rising as ego? As Bhagavan said, the only permanent solution to the rising of ego is Atmavichara, because we seem to be ego only when we're looking else outside, when we're looking at anything other than ourselves. If we look at ourselves, this ego will subside and disappear. So we, if we understand each teaching in its proper context, and if we understand from what perspective each statement is made, then there is no contradiction. Otherwise, if we, if we don't have a clear and coherent understanding, there will seem to be so many contradictions. But those contradictions appear only in our mind because of our lack of a coherent understanding of what Bhagavan is talking about. I hope that adequately answers that question. But one more thing to add on that. Though it is said that that suffering is the way to liberation, and that suffering reminds us to turn within. If we are truly following Bhagavan's path, that is to the extent to which we are truly following Bhagavan's path, we will thereby be, thereby be free of suffering. Because suffering occurs to the extent to which we rush outwards. When we are following Bhagavan's path, turning within, we are thereby surrendering ourselves to him. And by surrendering ourselves, we are remaining free of suffering. So 
the sign of someone who is truly, of course, we can't see from outside. I'm not saying a sign we must go and judge people, but we can, the sign of to, to what extent are we truly following Bhagavan? To the extent that we are truly happy, truly content, we are following Bhagavan. And we can all see this. If we are truly trying to follow this path of Atma Vichara and uh, you know, self investigation and self surrender, we will find that the more we follow this path, the more calm and peaceful our life becomes. That doesn't mean that there'll be less problems, but the problems remain the same. The external life, what is destined to happen is going to happen, but we are less affected by these things. Yeah, but life is full of calamities, full of problems, all sorts of things. But the more we turn our attention within, the more we detach ourselves from this uh, person we seem to be, and the less we are therefore affected by or concerned about the problem that we face. The next question, uh, it says, Michael, you explained Bhagwan's teaching to us very well about the ego um, or Maya from a perspective of Jiva, the requirement to turn ourselves in. Could you explain Bhagwan's views of Maya from the perspective of Brahman? Why should the Absolute exhibit this power rather than be as, as it is? As Bhagavan often pointed out, um, uh, uh, Yama sa Maya. Yama means she who is not, she is Maya. That is the very word Maya means she who is not or what is not. So from the perspective of Brahman, Brahman's view of Maya is very simple. There is no Maya whatsoever because Brahman is ekam eva advaitiam, one only without a second. Brahman is pure being. And so there's no such thing as Maya at all. Maya seems to exist only in the view of ourself as ego. Ego is itself Maya. And ego seems to exist only so long as we're looking outwards. If we look within, we'll see there's no such thing as ego at all. Without ego, there's no Maya. Because ego and Maya are just two ways of describing the same thing. So Maya is just another name for ego. And for, what is Brahman's perspective of ego? There's no such thing. Ego seems to exist only in the view of ego, not in the view of pure awareness. Because in the pure view of pure awareness, I alone am. One without a second. The view of Brahman about anything is the same, I alone am. Because in the view of Brahman, there is nothing other than I am. The next question is, uh, could you please elaborate what Bhagavan means when he says at the end of Nanyar, wherever one may be, one can be, because whatever will be is already predetermined by Prarabdha. Can we say that we can reap the fruit of Atma Vichara in this birth itself, even though the fruit of all other actions can only be reaped in future births? Maybe I should just repeat this because... No, I, I, I understand that, that is, there's a fundamental problem here. Liberation 
the destruction of ego is not a, the fruit of any action. Atma-vichara is not an action. When we turn our attention within, that is not an action, that is a cessation of all action. Because the doer of action is ego. When, to the extent to which ego turns its attention within to see who am I, ego thereby subsides. So, Atma-vichara is not a, a doing, it's a state of just being. All actions are finite. So, the fruit of actions are also finite. So, finite actions give, uh, um, give, uh, have, give finite fruit. And finite fruit will be, uh, when the fruit of any action is experienced, then it, that, that fruit ceases. If you're given an, um, a mango to eat, you can only eat that mango once. You can't eat, you can't eat the mango today and then eat it again tomorrow. Once you've eaten it, it's finished. Likewise with the fruits of karmas. That's what Bhagavan says in verse 2 of Upadesh Undia. Uh, that is the fruit of action passing away. But though the fruit of action passes away, what remains is the seed but gives rise to that action. That seed is the vasanas. So, um, the, the, the actions we do under the sway of our vasanas are what are called agamya. Those actions bear fruit. That is what is called prarabdha. Liberation has nothing to do with karma whatsoever. Because the, the doing of the action, the doer of the action is ego, the experience of the fruit of action is ego. Liberation is the annihilation of ego. So how can it have anything to do with, it cannot be the fruit of an action. So what is liberation the fruit of? It's the fruit of love. And where does love come from? It is given only by grace. Because the nature of the mind is to go outwards. So the love to turn back within must come only from within, from, from our source, from what we actually are. So it is grace alone that gives us the love to turn within. And only as a result of that love do we attain liberation. As Bhagavan often used to say, bhakti is the mother of jnana. Without all-consuming love to know and to be what we actually are, we cannot uh, uh, annihilate ego and be, uh, and be as we actually are, because ego, if we don't have that love to, to, to know and to be what we actually are, in other words, if we don't have the love to surrender ourselves completely, we will continue going out, seeking happiness here, there, and everywhere. So we... we that is, karma has absolutely nothing to do with liberation. That's a very, very, I mean, that's a very fundamental thing we should all clearly understand. So it's not, is, is it in my prarabdha to attain liberation? No, it is not in anyone's prarabdha to attain liberation because it is out of the jurisdiction of prarabdha. Prarabdha, all the three karmas are only for ego. Bhagavan explains it beautifully in verse 38 of Uludunapadu. He says, if Vine Mudal Nam Ayin, Vile Payan Twi Pom, if we are the doer of actions, we will have to experience the resulting fruit. Then he goes on to say, when one knows oneself by investigating who is the doer of action, 
doership will depart and all the three karmas will come to an end. So the doer, the, the, the doer of action is ego. The experience of the fruit of action is ego. But if ego investigates itself to see who am I, and thereby knows itself as it actually is, it ceases to be ego. When ego is destroyed, since doership and experiencership are only for ego, the, the destruction of ego alone is the destruction of doership and experiencership. Without a doer or an experiencer, there cannot be karmas, because the, the, the agamya is done by ego. The, the, the sanchitra and prarabdha are the fruit. The sanchitra is what it, the fruit that is stored for future experience. The prarabdha is the fruit that is allotted for us to experience now. But when we investigate ourselves and see what we actually are, we as ego die, then there's no one left to do any action, to do any agamya, or to experience any fruit. So all three karmas come to an end when we know ourselves as we actually are. Because by knowing ourselves, we thereby annihilate ego. By annihilating ego, we, uh, we put an end to doership and experiencership. So if, we, if we've read Bhagavan's teachings, we study Bhagavan's teachings clearly, uh, carefully and clearly, and thought about it uh, carefully, we would clearly understand that uh, liberation has nothing to do with karma. In fact, Bhagavan, in the second verse of Upadesha Undiya, Bhagavan, I didn't finish, I began uh, that verse, that is, Bhagavan said, the fruit of action passing away um, uh, remains a seed and cause, the seed is what causes us to fall in the ocean of action. The seed means the vasanas. So the inclination to, all vasanas are the, vasanas are vishaya, by vasanas here, Bhagavan means vishaya vasanas. So long as we are seeking happiness in vishayas, in things other than ourselves, we make effort through mind, speech, and body to attain those things. So the actions are, are driven by our vishaya vasanas. And because the, the so long as the vishaya vasanas are there, the, the, the karma is self-perpetuating. That's why he says it casts us in the great ocean of action. In the Sanskrit version, he puts it particularly graphically, kriti mahodado patanakaranam. Only thing is, that means the, the cause for falling in the great ocean of action. The trouble is in the Sanskrit version, because he wrote in a shorter meter, what is that karanam? What is the cause for falling in the great ocean of action? is not specified in Sanskrit. It's left for us to understand. But he makes it clear in Tamil by saying vittai. Vittu means seed. And he makes it even more clear in the Malayalam version, where he says vasana kara vittai. That means in the, uh, uh, it's the, the seeds in the form of vasanas. So those seeds in the form of vasanas are what perpetuate action. So Bhagavan concludes verse 2 by saying, Vidu Tarale. Does karma, the implication is karma does not give liberation. In the Sanskrit version, he says, Gati Nirodakam. Karma obstructs liberation. So liberation has got nothing to do with karma. Liberation is, can be attained only by 
self-investigation and self-surrender. That is, by turning our attention within, we are thereby surrendering ourselves to Bhagavan, and uh, liberation is the fruit of a complete surrender of ego, which is possible only by turning within. I hope that was a, a clear and adequate answer to that question. Uh, can I please ask a follow-up question? Yes, yes, certainly. So, can the reduction of the Vishaya Vasanas uh, also happen uh, Im immediately, or does that happen in a future birth, like do, as we do Atma Vishaya? That is, Vasanas are inclinations. We have been building up these inclinations over crores of Jammas, over hundreds of millions of, uh, of uh, lives. How quickly we can get rid of these vasanas depends on how firmly we cling to self-attentiveness. If we cling steadfastly to self-attentiveness, the vasanas will very quickly be uh, weakened and um, eventually they will all die. When Vasanas will be destroyed only when their root is destroyed. The root of vasanas is ego. Vasana's inclinations. Whose inclinations are they? Their ego's inclination. So in order to get rid of all vasanas, we need to get rid of ego. But so long as we have strong vasanas, strong vishaya vasanas, we are unwilling to turn within. This is why it's a slow and gradual process. If we were willing to turn within, it would be very rapid. But trouble is, we're not willing. It's a struggle for us to turn within because our inclination to go outwards is so strong. So in practice, Bhagavan used, often used to say, no one succeeded in this path without patient and persistent practice. Patient and persistent practice is absolutely essential because the nature of vasanas, that is, vasanas have no strength of their own. Vasanas derive their strength from us. The more we allow ourselves to be swayed by any particular vasana, the stronger that vasana becomes. So, for example, if we um, just want this a very obvious example of how people get hooked onto certain things. Uh, take smoking, for example. If a person is has has been smoking for a long time, the more they smoke, the stronger that inclination to smoke becomes. If they're one day they're without cigarettes, they feel very restless and fidgety, they feel uncomfortable. And when they get a cigarette, ah, and they puff away on their cigarette. So that, that that's a very, very strong inclination. That is why people who smoke find it difficult to give up smoking. But supposing a person understands smoking is not good for me. If I go on smoking like this, I'm courting trouble. I, I, I'm likely to get uh, cancer or heart disease or so many other things can be caused by this smoking. So I want to give up. It's not easy for them to give up, but because they have a strong liking to be healthy and to live long, they are able to give up eventually after some time. At first, it's a struggle, but the more they desist from being swayed by, whenever that inclination to smoke comes, they, they, they don't allow themselves to be swayed by that. That inclination becomes weaker and weaker and weaker. And the inclination to be fit and healthy, I mean, the, the liking to be fit and healthy becomes stronger. 
So eventually they're able to give up smoking. And after a few years of giving up smoking, they'll wonder, why did I ever smoke? They, 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 it would seem absurd to them that they ever smoked, but when they had that strong inclination, it was very strong. So from this, what do we understand from this? We understand that the nature of vasanas, the more we allow ourselves to be swayed by any, any, any vasana, the stronger that vasana becomes. The more we desist from being swayed by it, the weaker it becomes. All Vishaya Vasanas are taking our attention away from ourselves. So if we want to weaken all Vishaya Vasanas, how can we weaken them all? We need to refrain from allowing our attention to go away from ourselves. In other words, we need to attend to ourselves very firmly and vigilantly. If we hold on to the extent, let's say, to the extent to which we hold on to self-attentiveness, we are thereby refraining from being swayed by any Vishaya Vasanas. So the more we hold on to self-attentiveness, the weaker the Vishaya Vasanas become. And what becomes stronger is the Sat Vasana. Because the Sat Vasana, Sat means being. So our inclination to attend only to our being, and thereby to be as we actually are, that is called Sat Vasana. So the more we attend to ourselves, the stronger the Sat Vasana becomes, and the weaker the Vishaya Vasana becomes. And though it seems a very slow process at first, it's like a, it's a snowballing process. When a small snowball begins to roll down the side of a mountain, it's, it's rolling slowly at first. But as it picks up more and more snow, it picks up more and more speed. And eventually it comes crashing down with a great force. Uh, likewise with this, though it seems at first we're really struggling to hold on to self-attentiveness. Our attention keeps on slipping away. If we are patient and persistent in this practice, slowly, slowly, the inclination to attend to ourselves and the disinclination to attend to anything else will grow stronger and stronger. In other words, the Vishaya Vasanas will be weakened, the Sat Vasana will be strengthened. That is why this is uh, this seems to be a long, drawn out and slow process. But eventually, everything, all vasanas are destroyed in a second. But in order to destroy them, we need to destroy their root. And in order to destroy their root, we need to be willing to turn our entire attention back within. So as long as we are, um, as long as we are. Um, having strong inclination to go outwards, we are not going to succeed in this path, but we have to persevere in this path until our outward-going vasanas are sufficiently weakened and the inward-going vasana, the sat vasana, is sufficiently strengthened. Then at one moment, when the sat vasana is stronger than all the vishaya vasanas put together, we will finally be willing to turn within and surrender ourselves completely. That is when ego is destroyed. So we, we don't have to wait till all vasanas are destroyed. We have to wait till the vas, till the vishaya vasanas become weaker than the sat vasana, or the, we have to wait till the sat vasana becomes stronger than the vishaya vasanas. They, they, they're, they're inversely proportional. The strength of the uh, Satvasana is inversely proportional to the strength of the Vishayabhasana. So the stronger the Satvasana becomes, the weaker the Vishayabhasana becomes. Eventually, when the Satvasana becomes stronger than the Vishayabhasana, then we are willing to turn within 
and surrender ourselves completely, and that is the end of the story. I hope that adequately answers that question. Thank you. All right. The other question is, along with Atma Vichara, surrender is often paired with it. If there is time, could could Michael say a bit? Um, could Michael say something about surrender? Can we investigate ourselves without thereby surrendering ourselves? No, because as Bhagavan says, the nature of ego is to rise, stand, and flourish by attending to things other than itself, by grasping form, as he puts it. So, if we want to go deep in surrender, the only means to surrender ourselves completely is to turn our attention back within, let go of everything else, and hold on to ourselves. That is the only way to surrender ourselves completely. This is what Bhagavan says very, very clearly in the first sentence of the 13th paragraph of Nana. He says, Anma chintane tavira, vera chintane kalambaritku, satram idam kodamal, apmanishta paranai iripade, tannai isanuku alipadam. What that means is, Atmanishta Paranai Iripate means being as Atmanishta Param. In other words, being as one who is established as oneself. To put it in simple terms, being as one actually is, is alone giving oneself to God. How do we be as we actually are? That is what's implied in the first clause. That means without giving the slightest room to the rising of any thought other than Apmachintana. Apmachintana literally means self-thought, the thought of oneself. It implies in this context self-attentiveness. So the implication of this sentence is we need to be so keenly self-attentive that we thereby give no room to rising of any other thought. If we are so keenly self-attentive that we give no room to rising of any other thought, we thereby remain as we actually are. And remaining as we actually are is alone giving ourselves to God. So, but, but, but though the path of... Um, surrender may be, uh, start off independent of the path of vichara uh, it can re it can uh, it can reach its culmination only in atma vichara that is without investigating ourselves all we can do is surrender things other than ourselves so but on the path of surrender we we when in on the true path of bhakti, when we don't want anything from God, we just want to give ourselves to God. We when we want to give ourselves to God, what is the first obstacle we find? We want to put our whole mind on God, but our mind keeps on going here, there, worrying about the bills we have to pay and about the this problem and that problem in life. So we quickly the the, the true devotee will quickly understand the biggest obstacle between the devotee and God is the devotee's will. The devotee is worried about paying the bills, paying the rent, um, about the children's education, about uh, the elderly parents, about this, that. We have so many things that are, uh, are, um, are concerning us. Whatever be our circumstances in life, there'll be things that concern us. 
and so long as we're concerned about anything other than God, our mind will be going off towards those things. So the devotee quickly understands, the true devotee, the devotee who really wants to give themselves wholly to God, will understand that this will of mine, this mind that keeps on darting here and there, that is a big problem. So I want to surrender my will to the will of God. So they pray to God, not your will, sorry, not my will, but only your will. Or as Bhagavan put it beautifully in Aranatya Patikam, verse 2, Ninishtam enishtam imbadaku. Ninishtam enishtam means your will is my will. Imbadaku means that is happiness for, for me. That is, if we really want to surrender our will to God, whatever be God's will, that alone should be our will. So if God wants to put us in hell, okay, fine, it's God's will. I'm very happy. We can be happy in hell if we are surrendered to God. Not even the, the fires of hell can, can disturb our happiness if we are truly, if our mind is truly surrendered to the feet of the Lord. Um, so the, the, the devotee begins off trying to surrender their will. But the more we try to surrender our will, the more we find that there's always some likes or dislikes or small desires or fears or something that are still remaining. We cannot give up our will entirely so long as we rise as ego, because it's the very nature of ego to have a will of its own. So the devotee, as the mind gets more and more purified, the devotee comes to understand, I, I cannot surrender my will entirely to God without surrendering myself. So how can I surrender myself? The only way to surrender ourselves is the term within. That's why Bhagavan often said there are two ways, surrender or vichara, as if they're two different paths, because they start off seemingly as two different paths. That is, the, the path of surrender begins long before the path of vichara. Only when the, the, the surrender has matured to a considerable extent will we be willing to come to this path of vichara. Vichara can never be separated from surrender, because the, as soon, to the extent to which we turn our attention within, we are thereby subsiding. In other words, to the extent to which we turn our attention within, we are thereby surrendering ourselves. So there cannot be any vichara without surrender. There can be the preliminary, the, the, the beginning of surrender before vichara. But the, the, the surrender cannot come to fruition without vichara. Vichara alone is the culmination of, of uh, surrender. So of all the spiritual paths, the, 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 the foremost spiritual path is the path of bhakti. So all other part, spiritual paths had to lead to bhakti. The culmination of bhakti is surrender. And the culmination of surrender is vichara. So vichara, as Bhagavan points out, is parabhakti tattva. That is, Bhagavan explains this very nicely in verses 8 and 9 of Upadesha India. After talking about all the other practices of, uh, of bhakti, the puja, japa, the nishkamiya puja, nishkamiya japa, nishkamiya dhyana, that means the puja, japa, and dhyana, done with, without a desire. Puja means worshipping God. In other words, by, by body, we, whatever we do by body to worship God, that is puja. 
but it, we're not worshipping God for anything we want to get from God. We are worshipping just for the love of God. That is called Nishkamiya Puja. Nishkamiya Japa is repeating the name of God with love without any expectation, without expecting God should um, help me win the next lottery or uh, whatever it is. No, we, we are... We are repeating the name of God just for the love of God. Ramana, Ramana, Ramana. Why are we repeating the name Ramana? Because we love Ramana. So it's not for any, we're not expecting anything. We just repeat for the love of it. <clears throat> That's an action of the speech. Or we just meditate on either the name or form of God. Now, that is, uh, we meditate on Bhagavan form or anything. These are all actions. Puja is an action of body. Japa is an action of speech. Dhyana or meditation is an action of mind. So that's Bhagavan talks about these up to verse 7 of Upadesha India. Then in verse 8, he says, rather than Anya Baba, Ananya Baba in which he is I is best among all. What does he mean by that? Anya Baba, Anya means what is other. And Bhava in this context means meditation. So Anya Bhava means meditating on what is other. In other words, some, meditating on something other than ourselves. In the context, it implies meditating on God as if God were something other than ourselves. So long as we're meditating on a name or form of God, that name or form of God seems to be something other than ourselves. So that is Anya Bhava. But Bhagavan says, rather than that Anya Bhava, Ananya Baba. Ananya Baba means meditation on what is not other. Not other means not other than ourself. So Ananya Baba means meditating on ourself alone, on nothing other than ourself. And he he qualifies he he clarifies what he means by that. He says, Avanahamahum Ananya Babam. That means the Ananya Baba in which he is I. So that implies with the understanding that God is not something other than ourselves, but is what is shining in our heart as I, we should meditate on I alone. That is, if God is, 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 God is shining in our heart as I, we, we shouldn't meditate on anything other than I. So that is Ananya Baba. And Bhagavan said that is Anaitinamutama. It's the best among all. What he means by the best among all, in the context, he was talking about these Nishkamiya, Puja, Japa, and Dhyana, saying these will purify the mind and show the way to liberation. So when he said this is the Abhavichara or Ananya Bhave's best among all, he means it is the most efficacious means to purify the mind. It's also the only means by which we can get rid of ego. So this is the this is the ultimate path, this Abhavichara. And then he goes on in verse 9 to say, Baba Balatinal, Baba Natita, Baba Tirutale Undipara, Parabhakti Tatavam Undipara. What that means is, Baba Balatinal means by the strength of meditation. Which meditation is he talking about? He's talking about what he was referring to in the previous uh, verse, the Ananya Baba. Ananya Baba means meditation on nothing other than ourselves. In other words, self-attentiveness. So Baba Balatinal means implies by the strength of self-attentiveness. Baba Natita Sat Baba Tu Irutale. That means being um, 
being in Satbhava, Satbhava means the state of being, being in the state of being which transcends bhavana. Here bhavana means any meditation that's a mental activity. So attending to anything other than ourself, attending to a name or form of God, that's a bhavana because it's a mental activity. But attending to ourself is not a mental activity because by attending to ourself, ego subsides. So by the strength of that, that self-attentiveness, being in the state of being, which transcends all mental activity, that is parabhakti tattva. That is the very nature of supreme devotion. So the, all spiritual paths ultimately have to come to the path of bhakti. Bhakti is the, 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 the supreme path. The culmination of the path of bhakti is surrender. The culmination of surrender is vichara. So vichara is the very pinnacle of the path of bhakti, which is the pinnacle of all other spiritual practices. That's why Bhagavan says, being in one's own, uh, being in the state of being, by the strength of, of, of self-attentiveness, alone is parabhakti tattva. I I've forgotten now what the question was, but I hope that was an adequate answer to it. Sometimes Thanks, I get I get carried away by the answer and I forget the question. Because the question was basically, could you say something about surrender? And that really hit the spot. It can be quite emotional sometimes. Um, and of course, we've got the light, the force of Bhagavan's grace drawing us in as well, yeah. as well as the love and surrender. I, so. As Bhagavan said. Grace is always pulling from within and pushing from without. So all the <laughs> blows we get in life, all the difficulties we get in life are reminders to go within. And within he's always pulling us. Even our effort and our surrender is only by his grace. <laughs> because we surrender by love. Without <laughs> love, we will not, no one's going to surrender himself without love. So it's only by love that we are surrendering ourselves. And where does that love come from? It cannot come from ourselves as ego, because the very nature of ego is to have desire to go outwards. So to have the love to turn within, that can come only from grace. So ultimately, whatever effort we make in this path is entirely by grace. And by making effort, we are yielding ourselves to that grace. That grace is always trying to draw us within. In other words, it's always giving us that love to turn within. By, by trying to turn within, we are yielding ourselves to that inward pull of grace. Mm -hmm. That is why Bhagavan often used to say, grace is the beginning, the middle, and the end. It is grace that draws us to this path. It is grace that leads us along this path. It's grace alone that enables us to practice this path. And eventually, it is grace in the form of the infinite light of pure awareness that will swallow us. And the grace of Bhagavan working through Michael James. Thank you very much. <laughs> grace is Bhagavan himself. Bhagavan, his very nature is grace. He's Aral Swarupam, Karana Swarupam. Grace and Bhagavan are one and the same thing. Shiva and Shakti. Bhagavan is Shiva, grace is his Shakti. They are one and the same. Arunachala is Adhanarishwara. Adhanarishwara is a form of Shiva, 
but it's half male, half female. That is to represent the oneness of Shiva and Shakti, the oneness of God and grace. They are ever, I mean, they are just, they're the same thing, right? We can't say, is Bhagavan and Bhagavan's love, are they two different things? The grace is his love. And he and his love, I mean, his very nature is love. He is the very embodiment of love. Thank you, Michael. Thank yeah. you. So ultimately, it's all by the love of Bhagavan. Yeah. The love of Bhagavan is the beginning, the middle, and the end. <clears throat> because what yeah. is called grace is nothing but the infinite love that he has for us. He doesn't love us as the person we take ourselves to be. He loves us as we actually are. So truly, Bhagavan has greater love for us than we have for ourselves. Because we confuse ourselves to be this body and we take all this love we are focusing on this body, this little person we take ourselves to be, this little person who a few years hence is going to go anyway. We are wasting our love on this person, whereas Bhagavan loves us as we actually are. And what are we actually? As himself. He loves us as himself. Thank you. <laughs> We can love our neighbor as ourselves only when we actually experience our neighbor as ourselves. When we actually experience our neighbor as ourselves, there are no neighbors. There's only ourselves, one without a second. So, because Bhagavan, in Bhagavan's view, there's nothing other than himself, he loves us all. He sees us as himself and therefore loves us as himself. And his love is what, is, is what we experience as grace. Thank you so much. Right. Um, there are a number of questions, Michael, at least six. Right. Uh, six or seven. Um, I'll try and keep my answer short if I can. Um, yeah, I'll try and uh, group them together uh, because I think it would be difficult to answer all of them. Uh, the first is about the I thought. And this is a follow-up question. Uh, from your answer about the I thought. He says, uh, other thoughts are easy to understand as they appear to oneself as mental impressions, but the I thought does not appear to be a mental impression like other thoughts. Is the I thought then the one that all other thoughts appear to? Yes, absolutely. What is it that is impressed? That, that it, an impression has to be an impression on something. It's all an impression on the I thought. The I thought is the subject. The objects are just things that appear in the view of the subject. So I, I thought it's just another name. That is why Bhagavan calls in Tamil the word he used, the term he uses is nan enum ninevu. Enum means called. So literally in Tamil, it means the thought called I. What is that thought called I? It is ego. And, and and something quite related is, uh, how is mind distinct from ego? It, the term mind has different meanings in different contexts. Often the term mind is used as a synonym for ego. When we talk about the mind knowing something, the mind seeing something, there might, we're talking of the mind as the subject. The subject is ego. But we also use the mind more broadly to refer to all other thoughts. So my, 
in the broadest sense of the term mind, we can say the mind consists of both subject and object, ego and other thoughts. But what the mind essentially is, as Bhagavan points out in verse 18 of Rupadeshundia, is only the ego, the thought called I. Because all other thoughts appear only in the view of this first thought. So the essence of the mind, what the mind essentially is, is only the subject. But we also use the mind as a term referring to all the other thoughts. So we, the, the exact meaning of the term mind depends on the context in which it's used. But in many cases, when Bhagavan is talking about mind, he's talking, he, what he means by mind is uh, is ego, the subject, the, the knower of all other thoughts. However, we need to be very careful because there are, Bhagavan says we should always, Bhagavan sometimes talks about uh, investigating the mind. When he talks about investigating the mind, he does not mean investigating other thoughts. He means only investigating this first thought I. Attending to other thoughts is anyabhava. Attending to I alone is ananyabhava. But other spiritual teachers also say, oh, you should watch the mind. What they mean by watch the mind is watch the thoughts. That's something completely different. So we need to be very careful with words. We need to understand what the words are referring to. So we, if we are talking about the mind, as, if we're using the mind referring to the subject, that is ego. If we're talking about the mind referring to other thoughts, that is, um, that, that is well, other thoughts, they're objects. And we also use the term mind in other things. We say, put your mind on the subject at hand. That means put your attention on it. So Bhagavan says, he defines Atma Vichara um, uh, in the 16th paragraph of Nana. He says exactly what Atma Vichara is. Sada Kalamum Manate Atma Vilvetirupatikutan Atma Vichara Mendrupaya. That literally means the name Atma Vichara is only for always uh, keeping the mind on oneself. Keeping the mind on ourselves means keeping our attention on ourselves. And when he said that, that is the name for that, that means the, the name Admavichara refers only to always keeping our mind on ourselves. So Admavichara is nothing but keeping the mind fixed on ourselves. Their mind means attention. We talk about, oh, my mind, uh, I didn't hear what you said, my mind was elsewhere. That means my attention had wandered away. I wasn't paying attention to what you were saying. So the, the, the term mind is used in, in many, many different senses. Not only, I mean, in all languages. It's the same in Tamil, it's the same in Sanskrit, it's the same in English. We use the term mind in many different senses. Ultimately, everything is mind, because Bowman said the whole world is nothing but thoughts. So in the broadest sense of the term, the whole universe is nothing. It's all in the mind, as they say. But when Bhagavan says it's all in the mind, he literally means it. There's no universe out there. It's just nothing but the universe is nothing but a series of mental impressions. But who is aware of those mental impressions? It is ego.
The next question is, um, in the book Reality in 40 Verses, in a footnote, the following text is present. Could you explain this, please, Michael? The quotation is, though the world is one of triad, in the absence of the world, the other two are not, that is Jiva and God. They exist only when the world exists. Therefore, whenever the world is referred to, it must be inferred that it includes the other two. Thank you. I don't know who wrote that footnote, but that's uh, that's a rather confused way of saying it. That is, um, for example, I I I think okay in the seventh paragraph of Nana, what Bhagavan says is um, he he begins by saying yatatamai uludu apmasarupamondre. That means what actually exists is only Atmasarupa. Atmasarupa means the real nature of ourself or ourself as we actually are. That is what actually exists. Then in the next sentence, he says, Jaga Jeevishwaragal, Sipil Velipol, Adil Karpanegal. The world, soul, and God are, um, are fabrications in it like silver in the in a shell um ive mundrum these three all these three ekakalitil tondri ekakalitil marikindrana all these three appearing at one time disappear at one time so they all appear simultaneously and they disappear simultaneously here, what he that is why Bhagavan talks about God appearing and, and disappearing. That is only when we rise as ego, as ego means jiva, jiva is the soul. Only when we rise as the soul, we, or, or let's say, whenever we rise as the soul, we limit ourselves as I am this body. So, because we limit ourselves as I am this body, God seems to be something other than ourselves. So that God as something other than ourself appears with ego and disappears with ego. But of course, what God actually is, is the reality underlying this, this appearance. So he says, though he said, world, soul, and God, they they are mere fabrications or mental creations, like silver in the mother of pearl. They appear simultaneously, they disappear simultaneously. So what actually are they? He's already said, but what actually exists is only Atma Swarupa. So he then concludes by saying, Swarupa may jagam. Swarupa alone is the world. Swarupa may nan. Swarupa alone is I, in other words, the jiva. Swarupa may Ishwaran. Swarupa alone is Ishwara. Elam Shiva Swarupamam. Everything is Shiva Swarupa. When he said the Swarupa is the world, what he means by that is, he's not saying the Swarupa is actually the world. Swarupa is what appears as the world. What we see as the world is nothing but Swarupa. What we see as ego or jiva, I, is nothing but Swarupa. What we see as God is nothing but Swarupa. That's what he means by that. And then he concludes, everything is Shiva Swarupa. Shiva Swarupa means, Shiva is, um, it's, uh, Shiva is Swarupa itself. That is what we actually are is Shiva. And everything is that. 
So we, so long as we rise as ego, the world seems to be separate. We seem to be separate. God seems to be separate. They, if we want to see the uh, oneness of all these three things, we need to see ourselves as we actually are. <coughs> when we see ourselves as we actually are, we will see that we alone exist. There is no world, no jiva, no God. There's ourself alone. So what previously appeared as these three, as world, soul, and God, is nothing but swarupa, nothing but what we actually are, ourself as we actually are. To know that, we need to look within. So long as we're looking outwards, Jagadish, Jiveshwaragal, all these three seem to exist. The, the, the world and the separate, God as a separate entity are as real as ourself as Jiva. So long as we rise as ego, we seem to be real. So the world and God also seem to be real. And God, in, in, this, in this state, God has a function. He's the, he's the Ishwara. Ishwara means the ruler. He's the, he's the one who rules the whole Jagam and the Jivas in it. But if we turn within, we will find that what actually exists is only Atma Sarupa. I... Um, that that translation, that footnote you read, that was obviously added by a translator. The problem with a lot of the translations, the problem with a lot of the English books is the people who have translated or recorded themselves didn't have a very deep understanding. So their translation or what they've recorded, what's recorded, for example, in books like talks and um, day by day and uh, Maharsha's gospel. There's some useful things in these, but these books are recording what the recorder understood rather than what Bhagavan actually said. And likewise, the translations, are, many of the translations are just reflecting what the translator has understood rather than what Bhagavan actually meant. That's why accurate, uh, translations that really represent what Bhagavan is saying uh, are very important for those of us who don't know Tamil. Um, there are some questions on practice. So the first question is, the dream in the waking state has become a nightmare the only solution is to turn within to cling to i am i but that half second is not coming i don't feel good anymore as i rise as ego i try to cultivate as much as possible as much as possible ahimsa but is it impossible but it is impossible to avoid all pain for body and other i try to cultivate the attitude that all is giving up by bhagwan and this is all for my own good but it is difficult to see clearly what are the proper actions let's not worry too much about what are the proper actions as far as possible we try to act in a way but but avoids causing harm to others. Of course, there's no such thing as complete ahimsa. 
the, the very rising of ourself as ego is itself the, the first himself, because all troubles come from our rising as ego. So we there's no such thing as perfect ahimsa. But we we try as far as possible in our actions to avoid uh, actions that will cause harm to any other sentient being. Um, the, um, but what is of foremost importance, we, we, we shouldn't be too concerned about our actions. So long as we're trying to avoid causing harm, that is sufficient. Otherwise, we need not we need not worry about should I do this, should I do that, because what is going to happen is going to happen. So let's let's leave all concern about what should be done or what shouldn't be done. Let's leave that to Bhagavan. Our only concern should be trying to turn within. The more we turn within, the more we are thereby surrendering our mind, speech, and body to Bhagavan. So let him make them do whatever actions they're meant to do. We have to just try and turn within. However, it's, though we all understand that we need to turn within, what is lacking for most of us is sufficient love. We have some liking to try and turn within, but it's still hopelessly inadequate um, with, because our vishaya vasanas are still too strong. So the only thing we can do is to persevere in the practice because it's only by patient and perseverant practice that we can succeed in this path. So we just have to persevere in trying more and more to turn within and thereby surrender ourselves. That's all we can do. Let Bhagavan take care of everything else. That's all we should be concerned about, is trying our best to turn within and to hold on to self-attentiveness. The love may be lacking now, but the more we try, the more the love will grow. Another question on practice. If if I is so much rooted in the body identification that even Atma Vichara does not work, then what is to be done? Is it possible that this darkness are in fact outside influences like the environment, planets, karma, or is it one's own mind and ignorance only? There is there's nothing outside. There is no world outside, no planets, no stars, nothing. It all appears only when we rise as ego. So it's only in the view of ourself as ego that all the other things seem to exist. So let's not worry about outside influences. The problem is our liking to go outwards, our liking to attend to things other than ourselves. That's for that is what that like it, those likings to attend to other things are what are called Vishayabhasan. That's the whole problem. We shouldn't conclude that, 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 that I is so firmly rooted in this body that Atma Vichara isn't working. Atma Vichara is po possible for everyone. Maybe we can't hold on to self-attentiveness uninterruptedly throughout the day, which is what we should be aiming for. I think the vast majority of us have to admit we, we fall far short of that. But we can all try. All that is required is that we try to attend to ourselves. So if we give up and say, oh, my, my, this ego is too firmly rooted in this body, therefore I can't do Atma Vichara, we, we, uh, we, 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 we uh, 
failing even before we start, we, we at least need to try. Every one of us, if we have even the slightest liking for Bhagavan or his teachings, we should try our best to practice this. The more we practice, it'll take time, but slowly, slowly, the love to turn within will grow stronger and stronger and stronger. So we need not worry about anything else. All we need worry about is turning within. If we are trying to turn within, automatically whatever actions we do, we'll automatically avoid um, uh, causing harm to others, or uh, avoiding, we, we'll automatically avoid intentionally causing harm to others. Sometimes we, we may say something by mistake, but hurt someone or something, well, that can't be avoided. We, it's not intended that, but there will be no intentional harm. So we, we, we know which actions are obviously causing harm. We know, for example, eating meat or eating, um, we, we know how much harm is done in the, in the meat industry, dairy industry and everything. So we avoid these things as much, uh, we avoid these things in order to minimize harm. Those are no brainers. I mean, anyone can understand that. But we also try as far as possible not to cause harm to others, but we don't specifically have to try. So long as we're trying to turn our mind within, it will be our very nature not to hurt others. We don't like to hurt others. We don't like to see others suffering. So even if someone says something hurtful to us, we don't feel inclined to say something hurtful uh, uh, to them. Let them say anything hurtful to us. That doesn't matter, but we don't want to hurt them. So that will be second nature to us if we are intent on following this path. So we need not worry about actions at all. All we need to worry about is who am I the doer of the actions and the experience of the fruit? In other words, turn our attention back within. Next question. As I understand it, the four functions of the mind are reason or buddhi, the heart um, or memory, which is called chit, and ahankara, that is ego. So is the mind turning back to reason? The fourth function of mind is manas, the reaching part of mind. Okay, I, I, I understand what's being asked, but we need to be clear about this. That is, the antakarana, the inner organ, is said to have four parts. Bhagavan clarified it's actually four functions. Um, but it's the same thing, but with four different functions. So manas refers to the manamaya kosha. That is the grosser functions of the mind. That's the perceptions, memories, thoughts, feelings, uh, emotions, and so on. All the grosser functions of mind, they are classified in this classification. They are classified as manas or manamaya kosha. The subtler functions of the mind, the the reasoning, judging, um, uh, discriminating, and so on. This is called intellect. The intellect is called the buddhi or the vijnana maya kosha. The, the next one is the chittam. Chittam people often translate as memory. That is a wrong translation. Chittam means will. 
Will means, that is, why they confuse the chittam with memory, because the will consists of vasanas, which come from the past. Memories also come from the past, but memories are impressions. We experience something. We can, for example, we can remember things about our childhood. We can remember uh, the school we went to. We can remember the, maybe one or two of the friends we played with as children. We can remember we went to college or whatever. We, we remember our first job. We remember uh, meeting our husband or wife. And we had so many things we remember in life. All these things are impressions. We went through experiences and we have impressions. So that is memory. That is a part of the manas or manamaya kosha. That's one of the grosser functions of the mind. It's associated with um, with perception. It's 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 the, the the residue, the impressions of that is perceptions are impressions. Some of those impressions are retained by the mind and can be recalled. So that's all part of the manamaya kosha. Chittam does not mean memory. Chittam means the will. Will consists of, in its subtlest form, it consists of vasanas. Vasanas are the seeds. Those seeds are what give rise to likes, dislikes, desires, attachments, hopes, fears, and so on. So all of these are collectively called the chittam. They're also called the anandamaya kosha because the chittam means the will. Will means what we want. We want happiness. So as Bhagavan says in the first sentence of Nana, na, na, um, uh, um, Priyataku Sukhamedkaranamadalalam, since for uh, love, happiness alone is the cause. So the cause for love is, is uh, happiness. What he means by that is we love those things that will make us happy. We want those things that will make us happy. We want to avoid those things that will make us unhappy. That is why the chittam is also called the um, the Anandamaya Kosha or the Karana Sarira, because it's what it, everything else is uh, the, the vasanas of the seeds that sprout as everything else. But the Shaya vasanas are the seeds that sprout as the Shayas, all the objects of phenomena. So these three, the, the Manas, Buddhi, Chittam, the, the Manamaya Kosha, Vijnanamaya Kosha, and Anandamaya Kosha, respectively, these are Koshas. They are, they are part of the body. As Bhagavan said, the body is a form of five sheaths. So these are the three subtler elements of, the, of what, what is collectively referred to as body. Where the, the, the fourth of the, uh, um, the fourth of the four antakaranas is ahankara, ego. But ego is not one of the sheaths. So how does ego fit in there? Ego is what takes all the five sheaths to be I. So the nature of ego is abhimanam. It's what appropriates and takes itself to be I am this. So um, the, each of these, as Bhagavan explained, these four antakaranas, each is a different function of the same thing. The, the, the manas is the grosser functions, the perception, memory, thoughts, feelings, uh, emotions, and so on. The vijnana or buddhi is the, the intellect is the subtler functions, the reasoning, the judging, discriminating, and so on. Uh, seeing things clearly, that is the function of the buddhi, that's subtler. Subtler than that is the will. Subtler than the will 
is ego, but takes all these things to be itself. So, whereas three of the four elements of the Antakarana are sheaths, the fourth one, the subtlest of all, is ego. Ego is not any of the five sheaths, it is what takes all the five sheaths to be I. But it is, though it takes the five sheaths to be I, it is distinct from all of them. Because as Bhagavan says in verse 22 of Upadeshundia, all these five sheaths are, are jadam and asat. They are, jada means they, they're not aware. Asat means they don't actually exist. They're not real. Therefore, they are not I, which is sat. When he says I, which is sat, he implies I is not only sat, it's also chit. So ego is different. All these other, all the five sheaths are objects. They're all vishayas, phenomena, things known by us. Ego is the subject. So ego is fundamentally unlike all the other functions of the mind. So though it is counted as one of the four antakaranas, it is distinct from all of them because it is the one, who is it who knows the perceptions, the memories, the thoughts, feelings, emotions, and so on? I do. Who is it who is uh, reasoning, who, who is aware of the reasoning, of the judging, and the discriminating, and uh, so on? I know it. So we know the intellect. The intellect is an object. The intellect and its functioning is are objects known by us. Who knows all the vasanas? I know the vasanas. I know I like this. I dislike that. I I want this. I don't want that. I I'm afraid of this and so on. Who is experiencing all that? It is ego. So ego. Whereas all the other the other three elements of Yantakarana are jada. Ego is the only one that is endowed with awareness. So ego is the essence of the whole mind. So the, the whole, all four antakaranas can be, uh, can be collectively called the mind. But, um, but that mind is then divided into a grosser functions, which are called mind, the subtler functions, which are called intellect, the still subtler functions, which are called um, uh, the will or chittam, and the I that takes all these to be myself. <clears throat> I am the one who want this and don't want that. I am the one who am reasoning and judging and discriminating. I am the one who's seeing, hearing, remembering, and so on. So I is the, is the, that's why Bhagavan wasn't concerned too much with all these different classifications. They're useful up to a certain point, but the main thing is Bhagavan's main object is to point out what is the root. The root is ego, because all the other three members of the Antakarana, all the other three functions of the Antakarana, are known only by this fourth one, the Ahankara, the ego. So ego is the root problem. If we cut ego, all the problems are solved. I hope that adequately answers that. Brahman is pure awareness. Pure awareness is not an object that can be known. Then how is Brahman aware of itself? So is Brahman aware of itself through Maya then, through Jiva and through the world? Pure awareness is Pure awareness is awareness. It knows itself just by being itself. It doesn't know itself as an object. Brahman doesn't know itself as an object. It, Brahman doesn't need Maya or anything. In the view of Brahman, there is no Maya. Maya is the only ego. So Maya exists only in the view of ego. 
the question, which is, um, if I don't annihilate myself through the practice of self-attention in this life and die, in the next birth, will I start from where I left off in the practice or the progress made through the practice in the past life? Um, or is the progress made through the practice in past life lost and we have to start from scratch? Did Bhagwan confirm that we will stick to Bhagwan's path alone going forward? I read that Bhagwan once said, once you come to Arunachala, Arunachala is the only door for liberation. There is no other way for them. They will have to return here. Yes. Um, Bhagavan, when Bhagavan said that, that is meanings at different levels also. Ultimately, Arunachala is the only door for liberation for everyone, because Arunachala is not just the external form of the hill. What Arunachala actually is, is what is shining in the heart's eye. That is the only door to liberation for all. Yes, certainly. That is what we take with us from one life to the next is only our vasanas. That is why the vasanas are called the karana sarira. But it's, they're, they're the seeds that sprout as everything. So this entire dream that we are now experiencing is nothing but the sprout, the, 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 it consists of nothing but vishayas. The seeds that have sprouted as those vishayas are our own vasanas. So the one thing that we take with us when we leave this, when, when this life comes to an end, is we take our vasanas with us. So but by practicing Atmavichara in this lifetime, we are strengthening the Sat vasana and weakening the Vishaya vasanas. So if this life, if this body comes to an end, in the next life, we start off from exactly where we started. We, the, to the extent to which we have strengthened satvasana in this lifetime, it, that satvasana will come with us. And to the extent to which the uh, vishayavasana still remain, they will come with us. So the one thing we take with us is our vasanas. So there's no turning back. Once we started on this path, we may we may delay on the way, but we we will be drawn back to this path unfailingly. See, we in this audience, I think there are some fifty three people here watching this now, and when it goes on YouTube, there'll be many more people from all over the world may be watching this. Why have we all been from wherever different corners of the world we've been born? Why have we all been attracted to Bhagavan? It's because we have, we have come to a certain point in our spiritual journey, but we are ready for Bhagavan. So what we, all the, the, the spiritual practices we must have done in previous lives has led us to this point. So nothing gets wasted in this path. And Bhagavan used to emphasize, this is a very important point, Bhagavan used to emphasize, not even a moment of self-attentiveness can go to waste. So every moment we attend to ourselves, we are we are one step closer to our goal. So that is why we should attach so much importance rather than worrying about whether this body, whether I'm going to get liberation before this body dies or after. We are thinking about something other than ourselves. Forget about liberation, forget about this life or future lives or past lives or anything. Who am I here and now should be our aim. Every moment we attend to ourselves, we are getting closer to our goal. So the only thing we should be focused on is, 
attending to ourselves. Let, let, let us forget about past and future. Let us, who am I here and now? That is that is Atmavichara. This is one of the last questions. Um, what would you say to people who object? The world is perfect as it is. If they're happy with the world, fine. <laughs> why? Why? Why would I? Why would I? If someone is is happy with um, with this delusion, um, let them be happy. We're all seeking happiness anyway. But how long can any of us remain happy with this world? How? Is this world really perfect? When our near and dear ones pass away, is that perfect? When we get terminal cancer, is that perfect? When this, it, it's obvious to any person with a little bit of, um, of, uh, well, even the most ordinary person, even the dullest person sees this world is not perfect. There are lots of problems in this world. There always have been and there always will be. Embodied existence is itself a problem. But if you, if anyone wants, if anyone is happy to continue with this embodied existence, if they don't want to get out of it, let them continue. Sooner or later, they'll be dissatisfied and they'll look for something deeper. Until then, why should we, why, if they're living in a fool's paradise, let them live in a fool's paradise. It's better to be in a fool's paradise than no paradise at all. But we, we unfortunately, we are not able to live in this false paradise. We, we are, we have been given to see clearly the imperfections of this world, the imperfections of bodily existence. So we are looking for something deeper. But we are not here to convince others. That everyone will come to this path sooner or later in their own good time. Uh, next question is, sorry. I know that Michael has talked about this before, but I missed it. For people who identify as the opposite gender or feel that they don't identify with either gender, how should one proceed? How do we know if we should change our body if we identify as transgender? How should I proceed or, or how should they proceed, especially if we are not the body anyway? all identifications are false the only thing we can truly say about our identity is i am i i is beyond all genders i is not male or female or transgender or um lbgtq plus whatever i mean there are so many things all these all different types of uh, gender identification, sexual orientation, and everything, it all arises out of this fundamental identification, I am this body. Yes, there are people who are born in a male body and feel, uh, feel in themselves to be more female. There are some who are born in female body and feel themselves to be more male. That is, that is always, there have always been, nowadays we know a lot about transgender, but it's been there from time immemorial. In India, this was something accepted from very ancient times. In, in, um, in North India, they have what they call the hijras. They are the transgender men or, or 
people, even say transgender men, they wouldn't like it. They are people who are born with a seemingly male body, but they identify with the opposite gender. In South India, they have what is called Ali. Ali means Ali means it's neither male nor female. So there are so many, and within these, there are so many variations. These are just facts of life. I mean, some people, uh, the majority of us, identify with the gender we are born with, and we also, uh, uh, the majority of us are heterosexual. Some people happen to be homosexual. Some people happen to be, some are bisexual, some are asexual. Some people have no particular interest in this at all, in, the, in, in, in sex at all. These are all just differences of mind and body. The whole problem lies with our identifying this as, uh, identifying ourselves with this mind or body. So from Bhagavan's point of view, he, Bhagavan wouldn't be concerned with, Bhagavan is not concerned whether we're male, female, transgender, bisexual, homosexual, whatever. For Bhagavan, this is all irrelevant. In, um, in Arunachala Navamani Malai, um, he, uh, he sings in, um, in verse 4 of Arunachala Navamani Malai. I'll get the whole verse. Um, wait a second, let me just find the verse. Yes, verse four of Arunachya Navamani Malai. What Bhagavan sings in this verse is Anamalai une enan ene enan ena ene anandi dengido engida enade. That means Anamalai. Anamalai is the name of Arunachya. Do not think to let me pine away looking upwards like one who has not thought of you. Um, that look, looking upwards means looking with with longing or to, in despair. Um, manam, uh, manam malo udal enna aham enna manan mindida onnade. It is a not appropriate to perish as earth, thinking that the filthy body, which is earth, is I. Um, Tanna Oli, uh, sorry, yeah, Tan, oh, Tanna Ali, uh, Seri, Kannadu Orus, uh, Giri, Pannadu, uh, En Iru Kannala. That means beloved of my two eyes, without, uh, doing any trick, without playing any trick. May cool, love-filled eyes look. In other words, bestow your cool, love-filled eyes on me. And then he ends the last line, he says, Pen an aliyuru, nanna oliyuru, annal, en aham nannaye. That means, Lord, the form of light, unreached or untouched by forms of male, female, and those who are neither. Ali means those who are neither male nor female. In other words, transgender people or homosexual, whatever it means. It covers everything. Um, everything that's not wholly male or wholly female is Ali. Um, uh, abide in my heart. That is what Bhagavan is saying here is Arunachala is the Lord, the form of light, but is not unreached by the forms of male, female, or, or uh, uh, Ali. That means whatever 
body we identify ourselves with, the, I, the light of awareness I am ever remains the same. That is, the, those who are male, those who think I am a man, they, they're aware I am. Those who, who, who are aware of themselves, I am a woman, they're aware I am. Those who are aware of themselves as I am transgender, they're aware I am. Those who are aware of themselves as I'm heterosexual, they're aware I am. Those who are aware of themselves as I'm homosexual, they're aware I am. So the one thing that is common to all is this fundamental awareness I am. So Bhagavan says, that when he says describes Aranatcha as the Oliuru, uh, the form of light, that means the light of awareness, but is not touched in any way by all these identifications. So having come to Bhagavan's path, our aim is to go beyond all identifications. So whatever be, whether we are male or female, or whether we uh, have whether we have certain feelings that make us feel that we're transgender, we, we don't belong in the body, but we none of us belong in the body actually so um but yeah all these things these don't matter we need to go beyond all these things because our aim is to know who am i the truth is i am not a man i am not a woman i'm not transgender i'm not heterosexual i'm not homosexual i'm not asexual i am i nothing other than i that is the truth so we shouldn't be concerned about these uh, our aim is to go beyond all identification by knowing what we actually are. What we actually are is untouched by all these differences. All these are only pertaining to body and mind. Body is most bodies are either male or female. Some bodies have a have a mixture of male features and female features, but the mind is more diverse than the body. So the body may be male, but the mind may feel I'm female. So all these are, this is, when we look outwards, there's multiplicity. When we look within, there's one only without a second. So if we want to go beyond all differences, we have to give up all identification. So it doesn't matter what our identification is, our aim should be to give up this identification. So Bhagavan is equally loving to all. Bhagavan won't be concerned about all these, whether people are male or female or transgender or what their sexual orientation. For Bhagavan, these are all irrelevant things because all these arise from the wrong identification. I am this body. Turn within, see what we actually are, and we go beyond all these things. Despite knowing the illusion created by the ego, we still have to play the role given to us in life as a father, son, employee, etc. And these all impact the body and mind through tiredness, pain, and so on. In that state, it's virtually impossible to remain in self or find some time for self-inquiry, which in turn feels like there just won't be time enough to do these things, even if I took several births. What's the way? Do we not all think so many thoughts throughout the day, from morning to night? How many of the thoughts we think are actually necessary to think at this precise moment? We all, we all have a wandering mind. If we're traveling by bus or we, even if we're traveling by car, our mind will be wandering. If we're walking down the street, our mind will be wandering. Even when we're at work, 
doing our work, our mind will still be, all sorts of thoughts will be coming in our mind. Or, so let's say, just for, uh, I'm not saying it's an accurate estimate, but just for argument's sake, let's say only 10% of our thoughts are relevant to what we're actually doing. 90% of our thoughts is probably much more than 90, but let's just make a conservative estimate, 90% are irrelevant thoughts, thoughts that are not necessary. All the attention that we give to those unnecessary thoughts, we could give to ourselves. So the fact that we have a certain role to play in life, the fact that we're a father or a mother, we're children to our parents, we're husband to our wife, uh, we're wife to our husband, all the, so many relations are there. We, we've got uh, responsibilities in office and everything. All these responsibilities are for the person we take ourselves to be. Our aim in Atmavichara is to separate ourselves from this person by holding on to our being. If whatever we may be doing, we are always aware I am. The problem is because we're more interested in other things, we overlook this awareness I am. Supposing for a bit, one example I often give uh, in this context is supposing a very dear friend of yours is seriously ill in hospital. Maybe they've got COVID or they've had a, been in a major accident, they're in ICU. The doctors are, and nurses are doing all they can to take care of them, but the doctors say, we can't say whether, this, whether your friend is going to survive or not, we'll do our best and time alone will tell. When you go, will you not be constantly, because that friend is so dear to you, will your mind not be constantly, will not the thought of your friend be constantly coming to your mind? Even in the midst of your work, you'll be, you'll, the thought of your friend will be repeatedly coming to your mind. You'll be able to carry on your work very efficiently, but still in the background of your mind, the thought of your friend will be there. Throughout the day, whatever you're doing, you'll be thinking about your friend because you had so much love and concern for them. If we had so much love and concern to know who am I, we could equally well um, attend, that is, just like that thought of our friend would keep on coming to our mind, the thought of that, the, the remembrance of ourself, the self-attentiveness will keep on coming to our mind. So however busy we may be, seem to be, however many responsibilities we seem to have, if we have a love to attend to ourselves, it's the one thing we can do, whatever else we're doing. Because the one thing that is always shining clearly is I am. So all we need to do is to remember that to the extent possible. In the 11th paragraph of Nana, Bhagavan says, um, um, uh, actually, I know the sentence by heart. I just don't know why I'm looking for it. Oruvan tan sarupa madeyam varayil nirantara sarupa smaranaye kai patruvanayin adu andre podum. That means uh, if one uh, if one uh, clings firmly to uh, to Swarupas Marane. Swarupas Marane means self-remembrance, in other words, self-attentiveness. If one clings firmly to self-attentiveness uh, until 
to Nirantara Swarupa Smarana. Nirantara means uninterrupted Swarupa Smarana. Until one attains Swarupa, that alone is sufficient. We may not yet be able to hold on to self-remembrance uninterruptedly, but we can hold on as much as we can. The more we hold on, the easier we'll find it to hold on to it. And we will find that whatever other work we may be doing, we can be holding on to this self-attentiveness. Is that if we persevere in the practice, that love to hold on to I will be become stronger and stronger. And we will find that it that that what Bhagavan used to call a current of self-attentiveness will be will be like an undercurrent throughout all our life. It, it, will, it will be the background to whatever else we may be doing. We'll always be a at least a small part of our attention will always be holding on to that. Um, to our being, to I am. I hope that adequately answers that question. <laughs>